hello and welcome to Topcast for episode 101 for a somewhat more informal format today and Ask Me Anything episode. I'm presuming this one will need to be followed up by episode 102, which will also be an Ask Me Anything episode because I've received so many questions via Patreon and Twitter, primarily some by email and various other places. As you can see, my setup is a little different today. I've got some new podcasting equipment. So 101 is very much going to be the episode where I'm experimenting with this slightly different equipment, trying to learn how to be a little more professional. But without further ado, let's get on to the questions that people have posed to me. And I'll be Treating the Patreons with the respect they deserve. Thank you to all of my Patreons for your support over these last few years. And first among them is Amaro Cobelli. And thank you in particular to Amaro, not only for his patronage, but also for providing some of the excellent design work that I'll be using over the coming few episodes. And Amaro's question is, I would like to hear your take on the cultural beginning of infinity that, according to David, started during the scientific revolution. I don't think that I understand why he places the start of open-ended knowledge creation at that point in history rather than earlier or later. The dating seems easy to vary to me because I do not understand what precisely made this period so distinct from what came before. Why anatomically modern and presumably creative humans failed to make significant progress for hundreds of thousands of years indeed seems like something in need of an explanation. However, could it not be possible that cultural beginning of infinity was somehow much earlier than during the Enlightenment and it just took a while for the compound interest of knowledge creation to start making large leaps like we see them in the modern era? After all, for all their primitive ways, Europeans and Chinese during the Middle Ages did possess at least some significant knowledge that isn't found in hunter-gatherer cultures, like the building and maintaining of cities, for instance. The way David talks about static versus dynamic cultures almost seems like he suggests that there is a tipping point between the two akin to the melting point of water, where cultures past this point, liquid, may still get more dynamic, hot in this analogy, but they are somehow fundamentally different from static frozen societies. How can we conceive of this tipping point? How can we know where and when it happened and how to cause it again should we ever fall back into staticity? Great question. So I think that it all comes down to this concept of a tradition of criticism. David does talk in the beginning of Infinity about the various mini-enlightenments that happened over time. The Medicis in Florence, for example, but most notably, of course, in ancient Greece, in Athens, there was a mini-enlightenment. There was a time there where people had a kind of tradition of criticism. In other words, everything was up for grabs, more or less, certainly more than in the hunter-gatherer tribes that were mentioned there, where in Greek society, in Athenic society, we should say, people were willing to criticise each other's ideas and we had a flourishing of philosophy and mathematics and so on and so forth, political institutions. That was all stamped out by the Spartans, obviously, during the war and that enlightenment ended. Our enlightenment is different because it so far has persisted. It has been robust and resilient. So it's certainly not easy to vary. This tradition of criticism that began during the scientific revolution, somewhere around the 1600s, 1700s, something like that, leading into the industrial revolution, is not an arbitrary point in history. Yes, there was gradual, very gradual improvements in these static societies that pre-existed the 
Enlightenment societies, the, the, the societies in the West. But as David says, there is no perfect example of either a static society, which would be a society that makes zero progress whatsoever, and a perfectly dynamic society, which is making progress as rapidly as physically possible, something like that, or better thought of as one in which there are absolutely no anti-rational memes in that society whatsoever. But even in our dynamic society, the fastest growing, most stable dynamic society that has hitherto ever existed, there are still many anti-rational memes in the minds of individuals and culturally pervading our society and the way in which we are able to undergo rapid progress over time. So why did, as Amaro says there, anatomically modern and presumably creative humans fail to make significant progress for hundreds of thousands of years? Yes, that's explained in the beginning of infinity precisely for the reasons that you hint at there, which is they existed in a static society. What is a static society? A static society is one which is governed largely by the existence of anti-rational memes, which tend to reduce the capacity of people to even begin to think outside the box, so to speak, to begin to question the authorities, to begin to question the way in which things are done traditionally. They are inculcated with a certain way of thinking, and in particular, they're inculcated with the idea that you should defer either to the authorities or you should simply do, you should simply reenact the way in which your society teaches you to live year upon year, generation after generation. In these societies, there is no questioning of the norms. Unlike in our society, where the norms are there to be questioned, we question constantly what the norms are, sometimes indeed to our own detriment. There are sometimes when the light of criticism, so to speak, shines a little too brightly on certain good, virtuous things in our society, causing perhaps institutions which help preserve this tradition of criticism to come under fire and people wanting revolution to overtake our society, which is a danger. It's a kind of criticism of the way in which good institutions work. So our kind of criticism, so far it hasn't caused too much damage to our Enlightenment tradition, but it could. Criticism can always turn itself in on a tradition of criticism. As for tipping point, we, I think it would be almost impossible, but perhaps not impossible, this is a topic for historians of optimism or historians of the traditions of criticism. So there's certainly some avenues here for anyone who's interested in history to explore this particular uh, question about when the tipping point was, if indeed there was an actual tipping point. There are many that we can talk about. We can talk about Galileo's emphasis on using cementi, trials, experimentation in order to test ideas, to test ideas about physical reality. So certainly that is a tipping point. Is that all that you need? No, you need more than that. You have the Royal Society saying, take no one's word for it. So a rejection of purely looking at the authorities. Um, the tradition of criticism, I think, continues to be itself improved over time. So there wouldn't be a single one tipping point. I don't think it is easily comparable to something like a phase change of liquid into gas or something like that, because, of course, that happens at a very specific, definite point in time. And a tradition of criticism can continually be improved, and so I imagine that it is something that is more continuous than that. It starts off slowly, it begins to ramp up, and it continues to ramp up through to today when we figure out more interesting, better ways to create knowledge more quickly. So I hope that answers Amaro's question.
Okay, after listening back to question one for editing purposes, without really going into how the sausage is made, let me just say I need to put a pop filter there, maybe move away from the microphone a little bit. Let's try number two, question two. From Mart, hi Brett, here is my question. What's the reason children seem to be able to learn certain things much easier than adults? I think Steven Pinker once mentioned an age limit on learning new languages fluently. In chess, the general rule is that you have to start young to become, say, a grandmaster. Given explanatory universality, I guess these limits cannot be hard limits, but what explains this pattern? P.S. Happy to be a supporter with all the great content you put out. Thanks. Well, thank you, Mart, of course, for being a supporter of mine. I think, firstly, the common understanding of what's going on is that people's brains simply get older and slower and filled up with facts, and so therefore they don't have as much memory space left. Who knows about that? We don't know enough about the brain to know whether or not that's a factor. But with explanatory universality, what we can say about the software running on the brain that is the mind is that it is possible. It is absolutely certainly possible for any person who is older to learn and do whatever any younger person can. Now, why can't, why don't they? What is this pattern, as Mart says there? I think it's two things possibly related. One is hang-ups, and hang-ups is just this idea that you gradually learn over time these bad lessons from school, from wider culture, that you can't do a particular thing. I know I have them, for example, in the case, exactly in the case of languages. I feel as if I can't get a handle on, you know, learning Korean, which is what I've tried to do for some years now. But there's a certain level of embarrassment that comes with being older and trying to learn languages, hang-ups of that kind, that young children simply don't have. They haven't learned to be embarrassed by trying to make these new funny-sounding noises coming out of their mouth. But older people do. Any English speaker who at the age of 30 tries to learn Mandarin understands this feeling. There's a certain amount of embarrassment in trying to make these sounds and not come off sounding foolish. And you think you're sounding foolish. So that's one thing that's going on. That's absolutely one thing that's going on. Just hang up. So it's the bad ideas that are preventing us from learning as quickly as what young people do. I would say that's the main reason. And it has nothing to do about the physical structure of the brain. The fact that the brain itself anatomically is changing in some way. I'd say that's a minor issue. Or if we could get over the hang-ups you'd be able to learn things as fast as any child. The other thing that's possibly related is simply interest. People figure out what they're really interested in and they tend to get bored of things ahead of time because they know, I'm not going to be interested in that thing. Young people don't yet know what they're not interested in and so everything seems interesting. So they'll try and learn absolutely anything at all and figure out over time, that's not particularly one of my interests. I tried to do jiu-jitsu some years ago and I spent some months on it because a lot of the podcasters I was listening to were telling me about how wonderful jiu-jitsu is, how it's kind of like chess for the body and it's really interesting. I tried. Maybe I didn't try hard enough. I'm sure that some prominent, excellent jiu-jitsu practitioners could show me some insights into how to find it interesting, but I just didn't find it interesting. I wanted to find it interesting, but I couldn't, and I began to coerce myself, and I realised this is a fool's errand. Once you start to have to really try to find something interesting, there's no point anymore. And so I wasn't learning at a rapid rate because I simply wasn't interesting. And it wasn't so much that I had hang-ups about anything, it's just that I didn't find the insights and the interest that other people were telling me were there to be found. 
possibly if I persevered longer, but then again, that would have meant coercing myself into persevering longer when I had other interests. I could have been doing something else with my time that I did find more interesting, which is what I ended up doing. So I think that's all it is. Children don't yet know what they're not interested in, so they'll have a go at trying everything and they'll learn everything really rapidly because they have no preconceived notions that this thing is going to be boring in some way or other. It's possibly the case that everything is inherently interesting if you try hard enough, but there's only so many hours in a day. A child's kind of doesn't really understand that. They're so young, they don't realise that the number of years ahead of them is limited. You don't have that sense as a child. I know I didn't. And so you just tried to learn everything. So that's one thing. You don't know what you're not interested in. And the other thing is, as I said, hang-ups. Uh, you begin to think, you can't do that, that's too hard. Uh, that's going to bore me. Um, I'm going to be embarrassed and look foolish if I try and learn that particular thing. These are things that come to us via school and via other means, social groups and whatever. And this is, I think, really where the stunting of the growth and rapidity of learning really comes in. People become shy in social groups and especially in learning groups. You know, we have to admit that there are lots of people who don't have these level of hang-ups and you'd have to talk to them a lot of it's inexplicit knowledge you know Feynman famously taught himself all sorts of things you know <laughs> um, lock picking and you know how to play the bongo drums and uh, languages and uh, deciphered hieroglyphics all this sort of stuff Feynman did because he never lost that childlike willingness to seem foolish he was willing to go out and to seem foolish I mean if you're willing to play bongo drums as a famous physicist you know there's a level there of willingness to not care what anyone else thinks. And so that's what you need. But many of us, of course, uh, the majority of us, care what other people think to a large extent. You know, we're part of a social group. And so we're worried when we try and learn things that we're going to come off as foolish by people who already know how to do that thing proficiently. So I hope that provides at least some insight, some answer. Question three from Al. Anti-realism, instrumentalism, seem intuitively nonsensical to me. But what's the best argument against it? Well, firstly, in the case of anti-realism, if someone was genuinely an anti-realist, take them seriously, I think is some advice that I've received from David Deutsch before. And so if they insist on the non-reality of reality, well, then, you know, they're insisting that perhaps you don't exist because you are part of reality. So there's no point engaging with them because you can't possibly persuade them otherwise. So take them seriously in their own terms. Take them seriously as an anti-realist and if they think that reality isn't real, then there's no possible way of persuading them of the reality of reality. So why waste your breath? Why waste time? But for the rest of us who want to make actual progress and to find solutions in the real world, the argument against anti-realism is to say, because it allows you to make progress with the assumption that there's a reality out there that adheres to producing some regularities over time that which we can which we can come to understand to some degree of accuracy, and that allows it to solve our problems. It's the underlying precondition for making progress. Now, some people might say, well, I don't need to believe in reality. I don't need to accept that reality exists in order to make progress. Fair enough, but it's a, to me, it's a pointless discussion to engage in, you know, <laughs> that the person who is insisting that reality really exists and the person who insists, no, it's all a dream or something like that. If someone wants to insist that uh, physical reality doesn't exist and they're dreaming it all into existence, just take them seriously. As for instrumentalism, instrumentalism is seemingly, as I've said on my podcast many, many times, it's only an issue for some quantum physicists. It's not an issue for the geologists, 
it's not an issue for the ornithologist or the geographer or the historian or the political scientist or name anyone engaged in any activity ever except for certain very rarefied quantum physicists. They're the only ones who care about this particular thing. Instrumentalism is this claim that the only purpose of a scientific theory is to make predictions. That's all. You don't need to explain the underlying reality. And in fact, the underlying reality cannot be explained. Now, why do they think this? Because of bad philosophy. Why do they have this bad philosophy? Because they couldn't understand what was going on in quantum theory early on. So they gave up on ever understanding quantum theory. They gave up on explanations. And so they said, we can predict the outcome of experiments, but we can't understand why the outcome of the experiment is that way. So let's just say that that's all we're going to do. Very well, allow them. For the rest of us who want to make progress in understanding reality, which is the first and primary reason, I think, for doing science in the first place, because we want to understand this majestic reality in which we find ourselves. We want to come to a deeper understanding of reality. We want to be able to explain it. That instrumentalism is not a route to that. It's not a route to that more spiritual side of science in coming to appreciate the beauty of what we the complexity around us and prediction is only a small part of this exercise of this entire project anyway so the best argument against instrumentalism is we want to understand reality and for anyone who wants to understand reality there is a complete and utter poverty in instrumentalism instrumentalism is not going to allow you to understand anything all it's going to do is to allow you to predict the outcome of a particular experiment but Outside of quantum theory, who cares about that? <laughs> but you know, even a, a, a committed instrumentalist has some explanations that they're willing to take on board. It's just that they partition off a certain part of the scientific enterprise from explanation. In other words, they will have an explanation for how the apparatus works. You know, so you look at the twin slit apparatus, they will say, well, what the twin slits do is they block light everywhere except for the two slits in that area. And they'll have an explanation for how the light source works, how it produces photons by increasing temperature or whatever. So they'll have explanations for just about everything except for the outcome of that particular experiment. So everywhere, the instrumentalist, the committed so-called instrumentalist, will have explanations in their personal life, for every other area of science, for history, for anything at all you ask them about except for specific experiments in quantum theory. So an instrumentalist is never really an instrumentalist. They're just an instrumentalist about a particular thing that they're too afraid, one might say, of being committed to realism about. Because in the case of quantum theory, which is the only time this comes up, you either have to go for the realistic explanation that the universe is stupendously greater in terms of its physical constituents than what we can observe. In other words, there exists a multiverse, Either you go for that, which sounds a little bit crazy, but it is considerably less crazy than saying there is no explanation or consciousness has some effect on physical reality, something like that, uh, via the quantum realm. So hopefully that helps. Okay, so I am up to question four and my rate of answering leaves something to be desired. Unless we persevere. From Phil... Brett, as a long-time patron of your wonderful podcast, I have a question that perhaps you can shed some light on. Thanks for the opportunity. Page 217 of The Fabric of Reality contains David's famous challenge to those who still cling to the single universe view, explain how Shaw's algorithm works. 
when Shaw's algorithm has factorized a number containing 10 to the power of 500 or so times the computational resources that can be seen to be present, where was the number factorized? My questions are simply, one, is David referring to Bennett's minimum energy of computation when he talks about the computational resources that are seen to be present? And two, such a capability in a quantum computer would be a clear demonstration of quantum supremacy, which may be nascent. How would the single universe hypothesis explain it? And I also asked my Patreons uh, just recently if they had any uh, further questions to get back to me. And so Phil's written a follow-up. He says, since you asked, here is an elaboration to my question. Does David's specific challenge in the fabric of reality to explain what we today call a demonstration of quantum supremacy using Shaw's algorithm without invoking the multiverse rely on Bennett's minimum energy of computation? If not, what then? And has David weighed in on whether any of the current crop of quantum computers are poised to demonstrate quantum supremacy in this way. The last one first, I don't know. I don't know if David has weighed in um, on whether any of the current crop of quantum computers are poised to demonstrate it. Um, I don't think we know. I don't think anyone knows, to be honest with you. I have limited understanding of the state of quantum computation right now. I have some uh, limited knowledge of a specific kind of quantum computer that is being developed at the University of New South Wales. I'm you know, not involved in it in any way. I just happen to have been out there. I've read about it more than any of the other kinds of quantum computers that are out there. And all I can say about it is they're making progress, but it is limited at the moment, okay? And, uh, you know, for a whole bunch of engineering reasons, it's extremely difficult to stop these qubits from decohering, from the information from the outside leaking into the computer. And so there are significant engineering challenges for that particular kind. I don't see that the other models that I've hitherto heard of are demonstrating anything like becoming... Well, quantum supremacy is supposed to be this idea that one day there'll be quantum computers that far exceed the capacity of any classical computer to do particular tasks. What we're really after, of course, is a universal quantum computer, the quantum computer that can do everything that David's original theory said that it will be able to do, namely everything that a classical computer can do and more much faster. I, of course, hasten to add that the repertoire of computations, the different kinds of computations that a normal classical desktop computer can in principle perform, is identical to that of a quantum computer. A quantum computer can't do more different computations. It can just do some of them magnificently much faster because, as David says, it's a different mode of computation. It's a different way of computing things using the resources in these other universes. Now, as to Phil's first question, is David referring to Bennett's minimum energy of computation when he talks about the computational resources it can be that, or it can be, as we like to often put this, simply if you turned all of the visible universe, the matter in the visible universe, into a computer so that you had you know, as much memory as the physical universe can hold and the switching speeds of the transistors in that classical computer were operating at the speed of light, you know, and if you tried to do something like factorise a, a, a stupendously large number using that computer that computer would take, even operating at the very physical limits of what's available in this universe, namely 
the speed of light, namely all of the matter in the universe turned into a computer, then you would find that the amount of matter there and the speed at which it's operating would be insufficient to do the computation in an efficient time. In other words, think in the order of, well, the upper limit, well, there is no upper limit. You just make the number as big as you like and the, that particular computer might take hundreds of billions or trillions of years. A feat which a sufficiently large quantum computer would do in an efficient amount of time. Maybe it would take seconds or minutes or something like that. And so that's my understanding of what we mean by computational resources. The second question, um, such a capability in a quantum computer would be a clear demonstration of quantum supremacy, which may be nascent. How would the single universe hypothesis explain it? Well, that's the, that's the whole question. It wouldn't be, I don't know, but I would, would guess that it can't. It, it, Given what we understand of the laws of physics and how classical computation works, the idea that there are not other universes, therefore, is refuted. It's a refutation of the single universe hypothesis. The single universe people have all the explaining left ahead of them if we, well, when, rather, when we have a computer, a proper functioning universe or quantum computer, able to do things that no classical computer even a classical computer that consists of all the matter in the universe operating at the speed of light could do. Some questions from Ian now. Hi, Brett. Firstly, let's go through them one at a time. <laughs> one, what is the delineation between reason and unreason? In their first conversation on Sam Harris' podcast, number 22, Surviving the Cosmos, at about 7 minutes 40 and again at 10 minutes uh, and 10 seconds, David talks about the demarcation between reason for which he says science and philosophy are manifestations, and unreason when dealing with different kinds of ideas. However, the conversation never quite grants the, David the opportunity to elaborate on this distinction. Do you have any thoughts on this and where you think David might have gone? I don't know where David might have gone. My understanding of this distinction between reason and unreason comes down to error correction. And so science is a great error-correcting device for our misconceptions about physical reality. And philosophy is likewise a way of correcting our errors in all domains, you know, the, the, the meta-science view, so to speak, uh, the meta-mathematical view, ethics, politics, history, so on and so forth. So uh, all of our interesting intellectual and academic pursuits are ideally about correcting errors. We have existing ideas and the way in which we improve those ideas is by creatively coming up with new conjectures about those ideas and then criticising them, finding errors in the new ideas, finding errors in the old ideas, identifying and correcting those errors. And when we do that well, we say we're using reason. When we hold back from doing that, when we fall into dogma, when we fall into tribal beliefs, we fall into a way in which we are protecting our protecting ideas from criticism. And if we're protecting our ideas from criticism, we're eliminating the possibility, to a large extent, of correcting errors in those ideas. And that's when we have unreason. We say someone is being unreasonable when they are simply committed dogmatically to a particular idea. They're not looking for the errors. They're not trying to identify the errors. And if they're not trying to identify the errors, then they're certainly not going to be able to correct the errors. And so that's what I would say the distinction between reason and unreason is. Reason is where you are committed to identifying, correcting, identifying and correcting errors, and unreason is where you're not, for whatever reason that might be. Two, what is a fact? Oh, okay. Um, I've never really considered what my definition might be, but I would say it's something like 
a fact is a theory about an observation. <laughs> but it need not be that, of course. Um, that's being too clever by half. A fact would be an elemental part of a theory. But it would still be theoretical. Facts are, of course, in Popperian epistemology, still interpretations of reality in some way or other. If I say something like an electron, is, an electron has a negative charge, uh, that's a fact. That's a fact about the electron. Which is, just to, which is just to say it's our best current understanding of an aspect of the physics of an electron. Uh, two electrons will repel one another. That's a fact as well. But it's not really explanatory, is it? If we go into the details about why two electrons repel one another, and we say, well, they both have the same electric charge, and we say, why do they both have the same electric charge? Why should two particles with the same electric charge repel one another? Then we need to call on the deeper theoretical apparatus. But... Uh, the facts are an element of that theory which likely require which tends to require further explanation okay there's no such thing as a naked fact without interpretation explanation theory behind it question three is a person a beginning of infinity in microcosm in terms of potential limited only by memory and speed time health and short-circuiting by static memes if so what are the implications of this uh, I would say absolutely yes. Yes, the most important beginning of infinity, most likely, I would say, that hitherto we are aware of would be the existence of people who are definitely a beginning of infinity. Any single person is a beginning of infinity of knowledge creation. Potentially, as you say, limited only by memory and speed and time. Yes, and health and all of that stuff. Perfect, yes. Um, what are the implications of this? Well, a person is a special kind of beginning of infinity because it's a beginning of infinity in all different directions a beginning of infinite construction of physical reality and moulding of physical reality in light of the beginning of infinite understanding of that physical reality, the beginning of infinite creation of knowledge within the reality in which we find ourselves, the beginning of the infinity of wealth creation. So a, a person, and civilization more broadly, is a beginning of infinite outreach of people from this place where we find ourselves to the rest of the universe and the rest of physical reality. So yes, we are the key beginning of infinity, I would suggest, amongst the entire spectrum of beginnings of infinity that are listed at the end of each chapter in the beginning of infinity, the book. Uh, the, the important implication is that we need to value people far more highly and value life far more highly than we tend to do. Because if we go extinct, then as far as we know, that's it. Uh, we are, as far as we can tell, the only creatures in the universe that are capable of continuing this open-ended stream of knowledge creation and therefore the moulding, as I say, the construction of physical reality around us to make the place friendly for us, to make the entire universe ultimately friendly for us. So we can exploit the resources across the entire universe and not be confined to a thin film on the surface of this one planet in this one solar system of this one galaxy out of hundreds of potentially trillions of galaxies out there in the universe, if not the, vis the visible universe. Four, did you have any thoughts on the inborn knowledge of people? Could there be some startup script for people encoded in genes which sets in train the process of knowledge creation, substantiated in ideas? I guess if we knew how genetic knowledge could create knowledges in ideas, we could create AI. Curious about the interface between encodings. In the podcast mentioned with Sam Harris, 
uh, when discussing the universality of computation and the constraints of memory and speed, but also the lack of the right knowledge, for example, the knowledge for learning languages and explanations, David hypothesizes that the brain of a chimpanzee might be able to contain this knowledge. However, there's no way to implant this knowledge in the form of ideas short of nanosurgery. Um, do you have any thoughts on the inborn knowledge of people? Yes, we, we are not blank slates. I've been at pains to say this. I think this, this idea of blank slate-ism, so to speak, that we're born with no ideas whatsoever, it's a philosophical curiosity. I don't know that many people these days take it very seriously. We seem to have an understanding, you know, there's something that the evolutionary psychologists kind of get right. That we are born with ideas and those ideas seem to affect us throughout the rest of our lives. There's no one on our side of the ledger, I think, in the Popperian um, community that follows the work of David Deutsch that would dispute that. But there's been some claims over time that we do dispute this idea that we're born with certain ideas and these ideas can have effects over time. We agree with that. The difference is between that stance, which we all agree on, and the stance that says you can't therefore change your mind about these ideas that you're born with, that these ideas determine necessarily your behaviour in some way or other, that you're born thinking a certain thing and therefore you can't change your mind about it. That's completely false. That's completely false in all sorts of trivial ways. Uh, David likes to make the case about, well, and I followed his line of reasoning on this, you know, if there's anything that you're born with, if there's any idea that comes to you via your DNA, via your genetics that, that is implanted in your brain, it is the desire to survive. It is survival instinct, so to speak. That, that idea you're born with and that directs your life. And in some sense, people might say it is determining the fact that you keep on eating, you keep on looking after yourself, you have an instinct to survive, right? But people routinely override that survival instinct. They commit suicide, okay? Uh, in the sad case, in the, in the, the evil case, they, you know, suicide bombings are a thing. So although there are ideas that we might be born with, that's not to say we can't change our mind about them. There are, there, you know, we're, we're, we're born with apparently the instinct to eat, but people become anorexic, people go on diets. It doesn't matter what the idea is that you're born with, you're not determined to necessarily slavishly follow that idea like an animal is or like a computer programmed or a robot programmed to do a certain thing is. We are not so programmed. We have a creative algorithm running in some way, shape or form on our minds which enables us, even when we have an idea that comes to us perhaps by our genetics, perhaps we're able to reflect on that idea, criticise that idea, and in fact reject that idea. No matter how strong that idea is, sometimes it's hard. We admit that. Sometimes it's hard. People are born with, so we're told by um, the nutritionists and so on, a, a, a strong desire to consume sugar and fats because, you know, we, we, we evolved in the savannah and so our body craves these particular things, apparently, so we're told. But people routinely are able to give up sugar and fat. And so what do you say about those people? What do you say about the super fit people of the world who give up sugar entirely and to, who, who run marathons who are extremely fit and all that kind of thing? Were they born without that desire? No, they got over it. Okay, so, so the mind is more powerful than the body by demonstration of some people. Now, some people have less determination, less discipline, less ability to find fun and enjoyment in actually 
overcoming the desire for things like sugar, drugs, alcohol, fatty foods, unhealthy lifestyles, and so on and so forth. We here, <laughs> in our worldview, think that that's always possible. It doesn't matter what the issue happens to be. Sometimes it's extremely hard. Sometimes it's so hard. And I think if you go to the Do Explain podcast and you listen to Michael Golding, the psychiatrist who is schooled in the worldview of David Deutsch to a large extent, he has this vision, as many of us do, that yes, sometimes there are aspects of the mind which are very difficult for people to overcome the negative aspects of. Some people suffer from depression. Some people suffer from uh, what might be called mental illnesses. I have a bit of an issue with calling it a mental illness, but certainly hang-ups, problems, um, emotional disturbances, so on and so forth, that are very difficult to think their way out of. And so they might, for a time, need something like medication to help dampen down some particular ideas, some sensations, some emotions, and so on and so forth. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But in, in practice, although it might be hard, in practice, many times mere talk therapy might not enable a person to get over certain thoughts they have that they might have been born with, indeed. In principle, it must be possible. In practice, we don't always know how, is what I like to say. Um, as for the chimpanzee, I don't think there's actually a question there that you asked. So I'll, I'll, I'll pass over that in silence. Question five, what do you think about monopolies in markets? I think they can only possibly exist in a situation where the government gets involved. Otherwise, they don't exist. They're chimeras. Um, people talk now about things like Google being a monopoly, and so perhaps the government should get involved and regulate Google or something like that. I think that's completely and utterly false. Even if a particular provider of a service or good has the majority of the market or even all of the market. Let's presume, and it's not the case, we have things like Bing, but let's presume Google did control all searches. There's nothing that can stop another company from coming along and creating a search engine. Nothing at all. This is the history of what's been going on, by the way. Of course, on the internet, anyone who's been watching these things relatively closely, is that things do get overturned. Things that we think are there forever and a day tend to just go by the wayside. If Google has a majority of the search engine market because it's providing a good service that people want, and although a whole bunch of people might complain about the fact that Google is curating its searches in such a way that might be politically biased, if that political bias got so bad as to be something that people simply couldn't tolerate, then those people who can't tolerate that should move to Bing or start their own search engine. This happens all the time. What's that The famous case of um, uh, something to... It wasn't exactly monopolies, right? But, but Microsoft had Microsoft Explorer shipping freely with its versions of Windows. And people complained and the government got upset that they were giving away, freely giving away software, freely giving away Microsoft Explorer because that apparently was going to lead to a monopoly in the kind of web browser that people were using. How many people use Microsoft Explorer now? But this led to all of these issues with the US government getting involved in the business of Microsoft, breaking up the company, telling them that they couldn't have the web browser shipped with the operating system. A ridiculous requirement of the US government in retrospect. 
because no one now uses Microsoft Explorer at all anyway. And besides, now what happens when I buy an Apple product, which I do have, I have Safari shipped with it effectively free. It just comes along for the ride. But I don't have to use Safari. I can use Chrome, I can use Firefox, I can use other web browsers as well. There is no monopoly in the market except where the government gets involved, which I think is terrible. In the natural state of capitalism, if we had actual capitalism, there would be no monopolies. There might be places where a particular company has 100% of the market, but that doesn't mean it's a monopoly in the sense that most people think. Every time a new invention comes out, a new creation, by necessity, that's a monopoly. I'm not sure, but for argument's sake, you know, here's my, um, here's my Apple Watch here. Um, I think Apple were the first to bring out a smart watch, weren't they? Now, if they were, I can't remember the history of this, but let's say that they were. Does that mean that at the moment at which these, the first lot of these Apple Watches roll off the production line, that Apple therefore has a monopoly on smart watches? In a sense, they do. They're the only ones selling them because they are the first ones to have invented, created, marketed, and sold the Apple Watch. But what happens? Well, Samsung quickly emulate what Apple are doing. Garmin quickly emulate what Apple are doing. All these other watch companies start emulating what Apple are doing and providing a similar service, cheaper in some cases, maybe preferable in some cases for other people. The rest of us just like Apple products, and so we stick with Apple. But this is what goes on. I mean... People who aren't involved in business, like the government, shouldn't be inserting themselves into businesses where they don't really understand what's going on in the first place, especially in tech. Tech's the, the greatest example of this. How many politicians understand tech? Very, very few. And yet they all have opinions on it. They all have opinions on how the various businesses should run, and so they insert themselves in it. And of necessity, because they don't have the specific knowledge required, they ruin things. They absolutely ruin things when they stick their beak into things that they shouldn't get involved in. The places where there are genuine monopolies are places in communist countries. Look at uh, North Korea. North Korea absolutely has a monopoly on um, domestic air travel in North Korea. There's no competition there. In fact, for any product or service that you have in North Korea, essentially the government has a monopoly on that. And we know it's a monopoly because if you try to introduce competition in the market, you'll be arrested, thrown in jail, whatever, okay? Who knows? Um, and so that's what we should mean by monopoly. Monopoly should mean something where if you try to provide competition in the market for that particular service, even where hitherto there's only been one provider of that service, if someone comes along and decides to use force against you to say you cannot enter the market, that's a monopoly. That's what a monopoly is. A monopoly requires force in order to maintain it. And as big as some of these companies are, they're not monopolies because they can't use force, at least they shouldn't be able to use force, to keep others out of the market. And it shouldn't be any business of the rest of us to a large extent, if there is one provider of a particular service. Because if there is one particular provider of a particular service, then that means they must be doing the best job of providing that particular service. And if you don't like it, then you should start your own business to compete with them. And if you don't want to do that, if you think it's too hard, well, stop complaining. Stop complaining. Just accept the fact that someone is out there working really hard to provide this service, which you yourself are already saying is too hard for you to do. Look, and the last thing I'll say on that is markets have niches within them and the niches are filled by 
people doing things they're interested in. And sometimes just no one else is interested in doing that particular thing. Do I have a monopoly on producing podcasts devoted exclusively to the beginning of infinity and the fabric of reality? To some extent. I don't know that many other people are out there doing precisely this. I've found a particular niche. But if someone else comes along and decides to do this, great. In fact, I would like it because it means all boats rise with the same tide. We would have more people talking about specifically these ideas that I think should be talked about far more. It would only be an actual monopoly if someone decided to start up a YouTube channel and then I started sending them threats through the mail and saying, you can't do that. I have cornered the market or if I um, you know, went to the government and said, um, I want to copyright the ability to do this kind of thing. And anyone else in Australia, for example, who tries to start up a channel devoted to the work of David Deutsch should be fined or thrown in jail. Then that would be a monopoly, certainly within this country anyway. But the government wouldn't do that. And the government should not do that kind of thing, except that it does in some particular cases. For example, postal services I hear are sometimes kind of like this. The government runs the postal service and no one else is quite able to, do, to deliver letters. And so you end up with rather poor service in many of these places. Okay, that's enough on monopolies. So six, is it the role of the state, for example with taxation, to realise the ethics of moral progress of a society? No, I would say um, as a first approximation to the answer. I wouldn't look to uh, parts of the state uh, for moral progress. I presume we mean by politicians passing legislation perhaps bureaucrats in some way, shape or form, in institutions, um, making rules about particular um, uses of taxation. I wonder, really, we'd need to have an example of what Ian might mean here by, for example, with taxation. Does it mean something like welfare? Um, so I would say no, um, that if our ethics is that we don't want poor people starving on the corner of your local street, is it the role of the government to come along to give them food? Well, at the moment, it seems uncontroversial to say, according to most people, uh, as far as I'm aware, that the government has a role in providing the homeless person, the unemployed person, with a sufficient amount of income, certainly in my country anyway, in order that they can survive, in order that they can live. My personal view, that, that, by the way, in Australia, that's the federal government's role. Okay, so... Um, the federal government that's in charge of, effectively in charge of the, the entire nation, also is in charge of welfare to a large extent. So if you're unemployed, you go to the federal government in order to get a handout of cash every fortnight in order to sustain you. I would prefer that if, it's done, if it was done locally, of course, uh, at best by a local authority. Uh, but ideally, I would say it's best done by charity. It's best done by people who personally know the person in need of assistance. And these days, there actually aren't that many people in need of that kind of assistance. But is that what we mean by moral progress? I would think something like that. So moral progress would be so that everyone is more equal in some way, shape or form. Um, even then, of course, I have difficulties with this whole conception of equality. But certainly moral progress would be fewer people below what might be regarded as a poverty line. Uh, in Australia, I think like America, there's no one that's starving. No one has so little that they can't feed themselves. And the, the charities are sufficient in terms of providing food for people. And in Australia, 
not only are the charities providing food for people, but the government is providing money and housing and that kind of thing for people as well. And the government, the, the government causes more harm than good often. That when you have this uh, blanket means by which you're addressing problems of the individual by just having a single rule for everyone, everyone gets the same amount of money, for example, then, of course, you're not treating the individual like the individual they deserve to be treated as. Okay? Someone in the local community who is in need of assistance should be helped in that local community. Anyway, um, I'd need a specific example of what uh, this question might mean. But in general, no, I don't look to the state, I don't think it's the role of the state to realise the ethics of moral progress in a society. I think the state follows. People tend to uh, make certain progress and then the state follows along. But we need a specific example these days. I think historically in places, in various places, you know, certain people haven't had the vote, for example. And then, of course, um, it, well, it's the role of the populace to vote for <laughs> uh, the capacity of everyone to have the vote. Well, really, it should be there to begin with in some way, shape or form. So it's the, the, the citizenry that, that really makes moral progress. It's the, the philosophers, the intellectuals, um, the average person who, who agrees on what moral progress amounts to and then the state eventually catches up. Moving on to Neil now. Hi, Brett. Hope all is well with you. It is. I'm delighted that you're still finding great ways to get David's and Popper's ideas out there in such an accessible way, and you've connected to folk like Naval and his network. With regard to your AMA episode, my questions would be, can you please summarise the open questions that you think David's work points us to as you see things? Context is that I've had a vague but unfulfilled intention of trying to at least list such open questions. For instance, our lack of a theory of conjecture creativity, as per his Aeon AGI, or rather lack of AGI article, his thoughts on qualia, and not sure whether linked to the qualia point, but the difference between a universal Turing machine simulation of, for example, a volcanic explosion and the real thing. My reason for asking this question is that one of your listeners may be inspired to solve some or all of the open problems. Good questions there, Neil. Um, well, look... The open questions that David's work points us to are in all directions. You've outlined some there, but where, where do we really begin? I mean, how exactly we construct explanations, which is such a central part of David's philosophy in the first place, is an open question linked to this idea of AGI. We don't know what AGI is. It's an open question. How can we help eliminate anti-rational memes? Because the more that we can do that, the more we can identify anti-rational memes and eliminate them from the cultural zeitgeist, the faster progress can occur. What is qualia? Okay, these things are all tied up. The difference between a universal Turing machine simulation of a volcanic explosion and the real thing, well, that's an easy one. I mean, because uh, a volcanic explosion is purely a physical thing. It's not an abstract thing. And so... Um, uh, the difference is one consists entirely of the matter that is spewing out of the volcano, and the volcano itself, it's all made of matter. And the simulation consists of no matter, but rather it's an abstract thing that can be instantiated in any of a number of different physical substrates, unlike the volcano, which is just one physical... It is the physical substrate, that's what it is. It is nothing but the physics, right? There's no abstract aspect to a volcanic eruption. But the simulation is, well, essentially all abstract, 
The other open questions, I suppose, are things like, you know, solving aging. I know it's only orthogonally related to what David talks about, but we can be immortal. It's an important problem to try and solve that this question of why it is that people decay and eventually come to the end of their life, uh, that's just a series of open questions, each of which, if only we could solve them, would enable us to be immortal. How can we make more rapid progress? How can we deal with the problems of tomorrow without becoming fixated on the problems of today. I think that's a real problem for civilization right now, that we identify particular problems, we become fixated on them politically and therefore fail to create sufficient wealth now for what we might discover tomorrow is the really pressing problem. I think in particular we've seen that with uh, climate change and with COVID. Yes, both important problems that we should deal with, but we seem to be throwing all of our wealth eggs into the one basket to a large extent and focusing a lot of our knowledge creation and attention on those particular things, causing global anxiety about those things. Meanwhile, who knows what's around the corner? Who knows, as I like to say, bubbling beneath the deep blue sea or about to come from the dark black sky? We don't know. And are we ready for the unknown? We could be more ready for the unknown by having more and more wealth. But at the moment, there seems to be a great thrust of people politically pushing for less wealth, less rapid wealth creation from an, in a whole bunch of ways and less freedom in a whole bunch of directions as well. The two things, wealth and freedom, that we need in order to prepare for an unknown tomorrow. So being fixated. So how do we stop being fixated? How politically and civilizationally, how do we stop being fixated on um, known the known problems and become more concerned about the unknown? Because if we're concerned about the unknown, then, well, not, not anxious about the unknown, but just concerned about what tomorrow might bring, such that we focus on creating wealth and rapid progress today rather than slowing down progress because we think that might be a solution to a particular known problem, namely something like climate change, that um, we're concerned about the constituents of the atmosphere which might cause um, local changes to coastal cities and so on and so forth, okay, and uh, weather events that we might be concerned about. That's a very parochial concern. We need to be concerned about what's going to happen in 100 years and 1,000 years, not to do with climate change, but everything else that might potentially happen cosmologically out there. We need to be ready for that. We need to be robust and far more technologically powerful than what we are today to deal with um, the unknown. So I haven't really answered that, that there. But um, yeah, that, so this is, this is a, a part of the open questions. The open questions are the fact that we need to be prepared for more and more open questions that we don't even have a conception of. And uh, so I think that uh, that's what I'm concerned about at the moment anyway people's attitude to the future their negative attitude to the future being fixated on particular problems when they should be very concerned about the unknown from thomas thomas Schuler. hi brett i hope you are doing good cool idea with the ama one question from my side could you please elaborate your view on the simulation argument i think deutsch mentions it somewhere as missing the point if i remember quickly correctly I interpreted this statement as if it kicks back sufficiently, the substrate doesn't matter and what remains is more of a spiritual nature. I appreciate the argument as an example for the a theology, which I can remain agnostic about, compared to standard issue theologies 
which disagree with the facts of our reality, especially in terms of the concept of a benevolent God. I'll be interested in hearing your take on the argument. Have a good day and thanks for your insights. Thanks, Thomas. Yes, I agree with you that this brings up ideas of theology, God, the supernatural. Uh, Lily Tannett has called it supernaturalism. I think um, she might have got it from elsewhere. But um, this is the idea that um, once people become atheists, they reject traditional religion. So they reject God, they reject magic, supernatural stuff. There is a species of people, especially public intellectual, who then go on to embrace something equally mystical to a large extent. And something like the simulation argument is kind of like that. Of course, it's couched in this language of computers and technology and physics, but it's not really. It's not really about physics. It's not really about technology because the claim is that our universe is simulated within some other universe which might very well obey completely, well, would obey different laws of physics, that we're a running on a computer which instantiates particular laws of physics. So who knows what the laws of physics are like in the universe where the computer on which our simulation is running is like. I don't know. This comes from Nick Bostrom, right? Let's just go through the simulation argument. The simulation argument says that some point in, at some point in the distant future, we will have the capacity as a species to simulate entire universes within a computer, okay? maybe a quantum computer of the future. And if we do so, then inside of that computer at some point, especially if that computer is running a simulation that is you know, operating at processing speeds much, much faster, so the time is evolving much, much faster inside of the simulation, that inside that simulation will be produced life, which eventually evolves into intelligent creatures, who will then invent computers on which they will simulate universes, which themselves contain intelligent people who are able to simulate universes within which you find intelligent people able to simulate universes and so on. You have this fractal, you know, exponential increase of the number of simulated universes. And so by this argument, we find ourselves in a universe. And by the simulation argument, shouldn't we expect, as a matter of probability or something like that, that we are in a simulated universe? No. <laughs> this is exactly equivalent. It's exactly equivalent to, and I've never found why people are enamored by that particular thought experiment over something like, well, you're dreaming right now or you're living in the matrix. You know, in other words, solipsism is real in some way. You're the only thing that exists. Everything else is a dream. None of these can be falsified. I don't think any of them are particularly interesting. And all of them postulate the existence of an entity that we do not have access to. Okay? In other words, a reality beyond uh, what we have access to via the methods of science. So there's no point worrying because we can never possibly gain access to this thing. You might very well wake up out of your dream, in which case all of reality as you've hitherto known it vanishes and you wake up out of your dream into the new reality, Okay, if indeed you're dreaming. We can't rule that out. It's not a good explanation because it's infinitely variable with, you know, you're a figment of someone else's imagination. You don't really exist and when they wake up, you'll disappear as well. Or that two people are dreaming this thing simultaneously. A simulation argument is just like this, you know, that, that all of reality might disappear if, um, you know, the simulation is turned off at some point. But it's, it's, it's no different to me than, you know, belief in God. 
taking this seriously. God is this thing that we can barely comprehend. We might uh, postulate the existence of God, but God is omniscient, knows everything, has a mind, if mind is the right word to use, that is beyond our comprehension. Very well. There's not much point arguing about a thing that we can't begin to comprehend beyond knowing that it exists. So too for the simulation. The simulation just takes the place of God because as soon as you try to postulate what's going on outside of the simulation, you're in a realm beyond what our experimental physics inside of the simulation could tell us because any experiment we do inside of this simulation is only going to reveal more and more about the reality of the simulation. Not the computer on which the simulation is running and not the universe in which the computer on which the simulation is running, uh, what the physics of that universe is like. Let alone if that universe itself is being simulated on another computer and so on ad infinitum. It's just one of those things that I, I, I presume people um, sitting around campfires, drinking beers, uh, get into uh, talking about. It's, um, to me, uh, now having talked about the varieties of these different supernatural explanations, uh, none of them are particularly interesting because they all collapse into the same thing of you can't understand things beyond the simulation. But I might just say, I think Paul Davies might have uh, mentioned this in, in the Goldilocks Enigma, something like that, one of his books anyway, talking about how if indeed we are simulated, then, then, then uh, this is a simulation, then there will be a limit um, if you continue to probe using particle accelerators uh, what the smallest particle will be. You'll get to the smallest possible particle. you get to the, the bit of information uh, that is being simulated. But if it's not a simulation then there's no reason to think that we need to stop somewhere. It will just be a beginning of infinity, as um, we think physical reality is. We can only proceed on the assumption that we're not in a simulation. But it doesn't make a difference either way. So my take on the argument is um, uh, it's a clever argument, but ultimately uninteresting. It doesn't help us make progress or solve any problems whatsoever. From Daniel Anderson. Hi, Brett. I love the response videos you do. One about Yuval Harari could be fun. Um, yeah, so um, Harari, I don't know much about Yuval Harari. I know he's a historian. Um, I did read his book, his book sitting on my Kindle. Um, oh, what's it called? Um, uh, yeah, Sapiens, yeah. So Brief History of Humankind. Well, what I can remember is, um, like with many of these um, books uh, that take a, a long view of history, they miss what David Deutsch has contributed in terms of meme theory, this idea that what makes the difference between the non-progress and rapid progress is the existence of a tradition of criticism. That it, the things that are usually pointed to, like, for example, farming and agriculture, that that caused progress and a proliferation of people, that certain institutions, political institutions, for example, might have made a difference to uh, rapid progress and so on and so forth. And these are the antecedents that explain how we find ourselves, where we find ourselves now, are all aspects of, without ever right, getting right to the nub of it, aspects of this tradition of criticism, which really is the underlying fundamental difference between ancient um, tribes and even ancient civilizations and our modern Enlightenment civilization. The difference between slow progress and static societies and fast progress and dynamic societies.
Okay, last question from my Patreon. So this is episode 101. I'm going to have to go on to 102. I, I knew I'd talk for too long. I knew that um, <laughs> that given the opportunity to just wax lyrical about uh, questions off the top of my head that I would tend to be very verbose. And so here we are, um, well over an hour now of answering questions. One to go from Patreon. Um, feel free to join my Patreon. Just search for me, Brett Hall, or search for TalkCast Patreon on Google. Uh, follow the links and um, feel free to contribute and ask me questions. I, um, I'm happy to answer people's questions via WhatsApp and various other things as well, depending upon how popular TalkCast gets. But uh, get in early and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to converse with people uh, via email and so on and so forth if you're a Patreon. So once I get through this last question, we'll go to episode 102 where I'll answer the questions that were given to me on Twitter and various other forums as well. Might have to do those a little bit more quickly. So the last one of my Patreons to ask questions is from Joe Iman. Hi, Brett. Re AMA questions. Do you have thoughts on the way the beginning of infinity has increased in popularity in recent years? Did the book anticipate and explain its own trajectory? In a way, it is a resilient and useful book that contains resilient and useful explanations about resilient and useful information, knowledge. Is the book destined to become increasingly popular? Did David know this when writing it? That's a great question. Insightful, I should say. Now, I'll record this answer and then I'll have to um, quickly fire off a, a message to David to ask whether or not I can say this. But I have had this conversation with David because I, I've talked to him about the fact that it's so hard to get a copy of the beginning of infinity right now. And one of the issues is, among other things, at the moment, apparently there's a paper shortage. So we, we've, we've learned. And so the, the publishers of the beginning of infinity are unable to physically publish hard and soft copies of the book. So you have to get it on Kindle or audiobook for now. But also the, the, the publishers apparently continue to be surprised that it sells out. And David has had to say to them, you know, it's not that kind of book where it just sells a few copies and then it ceases to sell copies. So he knew. He had uh, the idea already um, in his mind, as far as I know, in talking to David about this, that he expected it to continue to sell year on year, decade on decade. Do I have thoughts on the way the beginning of India has increased in popularity in recent years? Yes, it's expected. Uh, it was expected by us, hoped for by, by many of us who read the book early on. It's, it's a difficult read, yes, um, as some people have said. Now, I say it's a difficult read because I keep hearing that. I didn't think it was, I'm not being arrogant, I didn't think it was a, a hugely difficult read I, I, because I just enjoyed it. I was just so excited to get into it. But in retrospect, when I think back, yes, there were, there were parts of the book where I had to reread. I had to read it multiple times in order to try and grok what was being said. Now, the question there also says, did the book anticipate and explain its own trajectory? Um, I don't know. I don't recall a passage where it sort of um, reflects on itself as such. But necessarily, the ideas that it talks about are the way in which, the only way in which we can continue to survive off into an infinite future. And as far as I know, it's reasonably unique in that respect. Certainly there's been no other book that has had 
all of these aspects about how civilization can survive and have an optimistic view of how civilization can survive and why the survival of civilization ultimately depends upon knowledge creation, solving problems. And that comes down to the existence of people, people being central to this whole project and people being the most crucial thing in the universe for the survival of ourselves, absolutely, as the most important thing in the universe, but also anything else we might value, including animals and the planet itself, if that's what you're really concerned about. It's only us and our ability to create knowledge off into the infinite future that at all suggests that that might be possible for us to survive, the planet to survive, the animals and the environment that you care about to survive. And that requires resources and energy and wealth and all of that stuff. So it talks about that. So therefore, it talks in a sense about itself being a catalyst of a sort. Now, now, if the beginning of Infinity had never been published, would it eventually have been published? Well, it would need to be. Someone would need to lay down those ideas for society to actually survive off into the infinite future. You know, when you look at even optimistic science fiction, like um, certain series of Star Trek, let's say, that, that, that picture people off into the distant future, it's just assumed that we somehow get there via... Um, increased technology. Um, but really, you know, technology is just a facet of knowledge, okay? It's one instantiation of knowledge. What you, of course, need is robust traditions, institutions, ways in which to come to um, consensus about what to do in order to make decisions. Um, there has to be moral progress, of course. There has to be progress in all areas. There has to be a focus on wealth creation as well okay so and technology is a an absolutely crucial important part of that but the central thing is ideas and it's the ideas in the beginning of infinity that explain what is required explain what is required in in many chapters in fine detail and also in broad brush strokes about everything that i just um said so did it anticipate and explain its own trajectory maybe yeah, maybe to, to, to some extent it, it sort of implies that these ideas are necessary and so therefore the beginning of infinity, at least the ideas in the beginning of infinity are necessary. So it has to be the case that the beginning of infinity, the ideas in the beginning of infinity only continue to increase in popularity because if they don't, we're in a mess. We're in dire trouble. If we don't have this optimistic appreciation of people if we don't have this optimistic appreciation of knowledge creation, of wealth, then we will go the way of the dinosaur. Okay, so this is why this book is so crucially important. Other people need to come along as well, promote these ideas, write books, produce podcasts, um, put these ideas out there in some way, shape or form in various different ways and shapes and forms. The Beginning of Infinity was one of the first perhaps the most prominent one that provides this optimistic view of the way in which we can overcome our problems because the problems are inevitable but to know and appreciate that the problems are of course soluble they're always soluble whenever there is a problem if we direct our creative capacity towards it and we have sufficient wealth and energy behind us in order to address the problem then we can solve the problem we just have to choose to so i mean why wouldn't it increase in popularity over recent years and why won't it continue to increase in popularity over the next few years because people have an absolute hunger our culture 
the Western culture, the United States, Europe, Australia, Canada, the English-speaking world, parts of Asia, I would say everyone, humanity, civilization, planet Earth has a hunger right now for optimism because we are saturated in pessimism. We are absolutely saturated from decades of intellectuals running us down as a species, as humanity, as being nothing particularly special at best and at worst saying that we are basically a virus on the surface of the earth. People don't want to hear this. They need, they are hungry for something new. People are hungry for a new view, scientifically informed, philosophically robust, informed by the best way of understanding our place in the universe. As David says, a hub of knowledge creation, a hub of problem solving, a place where, as we like to say, we have the entire rest of physical reality here on Earth, which is unique. On Mars, there is not a simulation of the universe going on. There is not this reflexive way in which the rest of physical reality is being modelled anywhere else that we know of except here on Earth. So we have this special relationship to the rest of physical reality, and in particular to the laws of physics. The laws of physics that govern everything that happens in the universe are being understood in increasingly fine detail here and here alone, as far as we know, on planet Earth. And so that's what the beginning of infinity tells us. That is, as far as I know, even if you read Karl Popper, you read Carl Sagan, you read um, any of the great luminaries of science communication over the years, I don't think they quite got to that. But David has. And so it will only continue to increase in popularity over the coming years. Which is reason enough for me to continue to do this podcast. So I hope you enjoyed that. They are my questions from my Patreons. Next time, questions from Twitter. If you have any questions yourself, maybe you can you could ask below in the comments of this video and maybe in some uh, distant future, I'll be able to answer those. There are many podcasts on my list. <laughs> I think I'm, uh, I've got a plan for up to something like episode 100 and, uh, well, 120 or something at least. So there's a lot more to come and I have many ideas for more podcasts as well. So I'm going to be very busy <laughs> making more and more podcasts. As I say, subscribe. I don't often say that, but subscribe. Subscribe to this channel. Subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to Naval's podcast as well. Someone asked a question there mentioning Naval. It's wonderful to have Naval on board, someone who appreciates the importance of these ideas and who is getting on board early with promoting the positive vision of what people are able to do and what wealth generation is able to do and what resources and ex the exploitation of resources is able to do for ensuring that knowledge creation continues off into the infinite future. There's no pessimism around Naval Ravikant, around Topcast and around David Deutsch and these ideas. So until next time, as I say, bye-bye. Um, Thank you.